Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and myself speak with teachers of yoga, meditation and movement and learn how they share what they love with the world. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. As I record this, it's a chilly seven degrees here in Melbourne, though the sun is shining. Strange. Anyhow, let's get to today's guest. In this episode, we feature a conversation with Dr. Scott Lyon. Scott is a clinical psychologist, osteopath, and mind-body medicine practitioner who specializes in therapies for infants, youth, and adults. That kind of sounds like everyone, actually. Anyway, Scott was also the co-creator of Embodied Flow along with Tara Judal, so we were super excited to get the chance to have a conversation with him. But before we get on with the interview, I just wanted to let you know about a few things we have going on at our studio, Garden of Yoga. We have so much happening, so I better get into it. Firstly, we're starting some community classes from Thursday the 25th of July at 6pm. These are donation-based classes and we would love to see you there. Our first guest teacher is Coco Nkrumah, who we had as a guest on the podcast a while ago. It was a great conversation, and he'll be leading meditations and setting up some interesting conversations. So I'm looking forward to that one. I'll definitely be there. Next up, we have our first birthday on Saturday, the 27th of July. This will mark one year since we opened our freshly renovated studio, and we'll be celebrating by running free classes all morning, and there will be vegan treats galore. Law. Finally, we have a suspended sound session coming up on Sunday the 20th of July. If you're not familiar with suspended sound, it's a unique event that will have you floating in an aerial hammock, bathed in a harmonic symphony of vibrations of sound and ancient healing energy from Tibetan singing bowls. We've had some amazing feedback about these sessions and it's just an incredible experience, so get along to that one. If you'd like to know more about these, I'll leave links to all of them in our show show notes or just go to our website gardenofyoga.com.au to learn more. Alright that is way too much talking from me, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Scott Lyon. Alright well Scott so good to get the chance to speak with you this morning, I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. I was wondering if you could just start by telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Sure, where I grew up. <laughs> That's a little easier than my background, so we'll start there. I grew up in the United States, so between the northern Midwest state called Minnesota. So if you've seen the movie Fargo, you know, like, oh, sure, you betcha. <laughs> That is my native accent, <laughs> and that's actually how my family still speaks. And then I also grew up at some point in California as well, in the Bay Area, before uh, moving to New York when I was 17. And I've been sort of stationed in New York since then, with uh, a lot of moving around, teaching and touring and such. And in terms of my background, well, it's relatively eclectic and diverse. And uh, I grew up in the performing arts as a dancer, as an actor, directing as well and choreographing. And also from an early age was very interested in science, wanted to be a biochemist 
when I was about five years old. When my parents asked me what I wanted to do, I, I said very early I wanted to be a biochemist. Do you remember how that came into your mind as your job of the future? <laughs> well, have you ever seen the TV show or the movie The Flash? The comic oh, yeah. <laughs> sure. So he was, as, as far as I understood when I was five, he was a biochemist. And so I didn't just want to be a superhero. I wanted to be a biochemist who was also a superhero. <laughs> and then, so you're about the brains as well as the powers. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was so in love with science and the process of learning in science. And even when I was more focused in the arts, it was something that just permeated every cell of my body, that, that discovery process of learning. And I went to school also for psychology as well as the arts, took some time to focus more on, on therapeutics, so became a movement therapist and worked in the arts for a little bit longer and then decided to go back to school for clinical psychology and then as an osteopath as well. And then lots of diverse sort of educational practices in there, time massage, visceral manipulation, cranial sacral therapy, nutrition, essentially anything I could get my hands on. I, I was always wanting and desiring the most holistic concept of humanity that I could possibly imagine, which included included studying like sociology, psychology, any of the human sciences that I could possibly read or study. I, I wanted this more full constellation of, of the human experience. So I'm still on my way. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lifetime of study. <laughs> I'm really interested. A lot of the modalities that you've studied, often healing modalities, and it sounds like for you, it really just came from that, I want to understand how everything works. But a lot of people are drawn to those modalities because maybe someone in their life is going through an illness or a health challenge, or maybe they are. I was just wondering if there was any of that perspective or if it was just your science brain wanting to know more <laughs> you know I I have to say it really stemmed from that deep passion of, of knowledge and in, in seeing where and as in that collection of information and, and data and understanding this this deep experience of what it is to be human it, it couldn't be anything but healing so I would say I wasn't looking to heal someone else and certainly my own process through all of these modalities was deeply healing. But I would say that the, the accumulation of knowledge, it led to an understanding of what healing is. And then the practicum of that emerged from that understanding. Wow, that sounds beautiful. Mm. And I'm really wondering, uh, when did you discover yoga and how does that fit into the mix? <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes I think about yoga as, you know, all the things that I've studied, that yoga was the original holistic container of all of those. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, you know, my exposure to yoga and meditation when I was 11 or 12, um, it, it just sort of landed as, oh, this is somehow a container for all of this laboratory of information I'm hoping to discover from an experiential perspective. And 
I don't think my my sort of comprehension of yoga has shifted all too much from that sort of basic or that first sort of sense of what yoga was. I you know I was a dancer and was introduced to yoga as sort of a, a supplementary practice and getting more flexible in dance because I was quite inflexible. And it sort of led me down a much deeper path of these experiences of these first tastes of what I would call like awe. And it expanded and expanded and expanded and continues to expand of what sort of my understanding or my awareness of of what is yoga. And I think that's one of the reasons I can stay in that field of research and exploration with yoga is that it continues to unfold. I'm not, I, I, I would be disappointed if I ever got to a point where I was just satisfied. (laughs) (laughs) And so was there a moment when you were inspired or maybe you were inspired with Tara Judell together to kind of systematize embodied flow and to co-create something that had its own name and its own container? Yeah. So about six years ago, I was uh, assisting in a training by my teacher, Bonnie Bainbridge Cohn, who's like the mother or the grandmother of somatics. She created the, the modality body-mind centering. And I had stumbled upon body-mind centering in university when I was about 15 or 16. And, and I really mean stumbled. I was, I was in a graduate level class in biopsychology, which was way over my head as a 15-year-old. But I petitioned and I made a good case. And I remember in the first class of that biopsychology graduate course, having my first and only major anxiety attack, I was so overwhelmed. And I remember this girl peeling this unripe banana next to me. And I just started feeling tears down my cheeks and I ran out the door. Oh, And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I had to be in the university classes because I was under a specific age. And the only class that hadn't started in the university was a class called Body Mind Centering. And so I had to sign up for it. And it was my first place in my life where I, I felt I landed. I had never felt so much like I knew what home was. And, you know, later that, that sort of concept has deeply informed embodied flow, that sense of what it means to truly land home within ourselves. And so body-mind centering was my first taste of that. And so it might have been a year or two later when I started the practitioner and teacher training program. And I was the youngest person to ever do that whole training as well. And um, so Bonnie, you know, we, we joke all the time. She, she often reminds me that I think I turned 18 or 19 in the training program. And for whatever reason, was having a panic about what it was to turn 18 or 19. <laughs> and she, you know, I'm 35 now. And probably every year on my birthday, she has to call me and remind me about how silly it was and cute it was as an 18-year-old that I was freaking out about getting older. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so flash forward, 
many years later, I was assisting her in a seminar or workshop in California and Tara Judell was taking it and we just hit it off. We were sharing a common language that I hadn't experienced with very many people that I could just so easily have these really deep conversations and, and feel inspired by and feel like someone had this depth of wisdom and information that I, that I hadn't even been exposed to yet. One of the modalities that Tara offers is this, you know, the non-dual tantric philosophy and in body mind centering and other mo experiential modalities that I've studied, um, I've had this huge wealth of, of experiences that are these moments of deep awe that didn't have context to them, that I didn't know how to put into a sort of solidified concept or philosophy. And one of the beautiful things that Tara offered me and then, you know, in our co-creation of Embodied Flow was this context of these, these experiences of myself, of the universe, of if that isn't enough, of nature, <laughs> of, of these deep, intimate relationships that I, I didn't have words for. I didn't have a context for. I didn't have a container for. I mean, yoga was a container, but I, the depth of knowledge that I had was very little about yoga. And she she had this huge depth and, and width of knowledge that allowed me to put a context onto all of this formlessness of experience. And so out of that, we really co-created embodied flow from this, the somatics and these practices that offer these deep, profound, wordless experiences of the universe, of ourself, of, of each other as, as this unified field of experience, of consciousness. And then, you know, the way in which the containers of the philosophy of, of these structures that we've built, or what we might call these maps of, of experience, came together in this way in which we were offering these maps of context and experience into the deepest realms of our embodied self. That sounds really amazing and makes me really want to go to an embodied flow class. <laughs> For someone just walking in the door, I imagine while dropping into awe and understanding of the universe is a possibility in this practice, sure. what would the class look like just in a practical sense? Or are they all, all the classes just really different because it's such a creative style? Well, it, you know, we really wanted to empower our teachers. And, you know, one of the things that is tricky is that, you know, something I've been saying a lot is that healing and transformational processes should be as unique as you are. And to create a modality or a school in which we would somehow limit it to a particular map or one particular path on a map would be limiting towards the unique experience of one's own healing and transformational process. So it's a little, you know, in that way, it can be a little tricky to say that a embodied flow class looks or feels one particular way. But what we do have as sort of landmarks or hallmarks of our 
school is that it is about someone's deep experience of what they're exploring. It is deeply about growing more capacity of resilience and of agency of one's own sense of their process and their own existence and their own path in, in this, you know, very complex world that we live in. And, you know, these are big concepts. So to, to make them operationalized in a classroom setting, you know, it, it takes some time in our training program to get to that point. It's not as easy as, as to say, okay, you do these 10 poses and you're awakened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, you know, some days really wish it was. But, <laughs> but then it wouldn't really be honoring our unique nature we are if take the snowflake example you know metaphor of like we are all snow but in our own unique process in our own unique pattern and so how do we support someone through a universal practice to feel and experience their unique nature within the global sense of their true nature as one unified energy mass construction. So what it would mean to walk into a class would be about the invitation to deeply enter into the experience of you. And it's done in in a multitude of ways. And it's also the, the classes or the trainings or the methodology is also reflecting okay, it's not just about entering into ourselves. It's also about entering into what prevents us or obstructs us or thwarts us from that true experience or our true nature. That makes a lot of sense. And it's really making me think that your teacher training must be a very in-depth and transformational process because to be the teacher who's facilitating that kind of experience for anyone who's walked off the street into your class, you would have to have a deep level of understanding of who you are and your own quirks and personal blockages. And it feels like that level of personal understanding usually takes years of yoga practice to get to. So 300 hours is like a pretty packed schedule to get to the place where the teachers are ready to facilitate that kind of an experience for everyone else who walks in the door. Yeah. I mean, we we talk about, you know, when someone goes through our teacher training, that they're an agent of transmission. And so their embodied experience of going through the layers of themselves, whether it's actually the tangible, like, the experiential nature of their organs or their bones or other developmental structures of themselves or of the philosophy that their own deep process of, of discovery actually becomes the beacon to which other people can be in resonance with. I mean, we think about like a master pianist or musician, that it's not just about the instrument. It's about the, the way in which they become absolutely in sync, the musician and the instrument and the music. That's one way to even describe the word flow. Mm. And it's this deep alignment 
that we're really talking about that is flow. And, and one of the reasons, you know, when we talk about embodied flow, it is truly this absorption and deep alignment with our essential nature. And you could call it the Tao or you could call it the way or, or what, you know, there are a multitude of words for this same essential nature, depending on the philosophical sort of perspective. Mm. But the process of attuning to our own self as a way of then aligning into our true nature, it is, you know, one of the things when you say <laughs> it could take years, one of the things that we discovered is the introduction of the somatics. So the, the experience and the practice of our living body shaves off a lot of that time. So that is not just we fall into the potential moments of awe, but that these practices are actually creating the container for them. In Embodied Flow, we're really bringing in a lot of these practices, whether it's in the workshop format or in the class format or in the trainings, to, to really sort of fast track in some ways this process of deep alignment. That makes a lot of sense. So the somatics can be a useful tool to, for want of a better phrase, like get people out of their head and just directly ground them in their bodies. Yeah. I mean, our bodies are the vehicles of awakening. That's our first principle, that when we, we are a drop of water in the ocean of consciousness. So how do we discover and enhance and enlighten our awareness and our experience, our feeling of ourself as that drop of water. So we may then feel ourselves not as separate entities, but as unified or connected into that greater ocean. And the body is our access point. Where do we have emotions? Where do we have experiences? Where do we have feelings? It's all in the body. It is meant to be the place in which we experience ourselves as a way of then growing out into the bigger sense of self. And so the more you can enhance those capacities, those interoception, that proprioception, that kinesthetic sensitivity, you expand it so much faster that the, the taste and the experiences of awe are all of the aspects of us, which is simply a reflection of all that's around us. So in that sense, you know, our embodiment, which is the whole sense of that enhancement, that enlightenment, that expansion of awareness, that deeper inhabitants of ourself, it is, it is the formation or the, the foundation to which to then step into flow, to step into, to absorb and step into that deep synchronization. And we could talk about that within our own self. So we could say, you know, our own self-actualization. So we're stepping into our own personal truest nature. And then we could talk about that transpersonal flow of stepping into that, that sense of our true nature that is everything, including ourself and beyond. Yeah, beautiful. So a lot of your descriptions, especially about the proprioception and the interoception, and also that connection to our true nature and then to everything else that is, yeah. sounds 
like very much of traditional yoga, but I'd love to know the layer of somatics that comes into that for people who haven't experienced a somatic practice. How would that feel different to a traditional yoga practice? Or maybe you could even just briefly describe one of the exercises that you might bring into a practice. You know, yoga is such a diverse term these days. It really is. So so that's important to know, you know, when it might, the practice of entering into that state of yoga looked probably extraordinarily different a thousand years ago than what we might call as the sort of popularized concept of yoga, which just so we're clear, I don't, I don't shit on. I know a lot of people do. And I, I'm, I think that just moving and breathing in general is so profound that whatever doorway we have into it is, is significant. That being said, you know, the, the, the vast technology that was created thousands of years ago, I think in, in sort of the popularized class is, is such a tiny little fraction of that technology that's been offered. So the somatics in, in some sense is actually bringing back that what I perceive as that initial technology. So I don't, I think in some ways that bringing in somatics is very traditional. The philosophy emerged from experience. You know, the, 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 the sense that, you know, we could pierce the veil of Maya that emerged from someone's actual experience of it. And then they, they contrived words to describe that experience as to create a map of supporting others to get back to it. So in many ways, what we experience in the popularized asana classes have some of that technology, but I would say just a small fraction of it. And, and what somatics has, you know, the somatics offers is actually bringing us closer to that initial technology of experiential nature. And one very easy, or maybe not so easy, experiential practice, which I'll just lead us through right now. Hello, Ran here. So just popping in for a moment. Now, I find that meditations mid-podcast can sort of slow down the flow of the conversation a little bit and they're not necessarily a good thing if you're out driving. So what I've done, I've taken it out and uploaded it to our Patreon page where you can listen to there. Now, you can access it for free, but you will have to sign up to Patreon to get access. Now, it's a great meditation and well worth a listen, so go over over there and then come on back and listen to the rest of this episode but speaking of patreon it's a way that you can support the podcast and we would absolutely love your help and we pay for some of our episodes to be transcribed from the money we get from patreon and in addition some of our supporters get access to extra special content and we have some great videos and so on up there so go on help us out all right let's get back to the conversation with scott Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And you might have already answered the next question that was on my mind because a lot of your practice is about dropping in 
And I know as a yoga teacher, sometimes you just have those days where you get caught in traffic and someone calls you with some terrible news just before your class and then you get there and everyone else's energy is also really discordant and people are late and there's someone doing renovations in the studio next door and sometimes it's easier to drop into flow on some days than others. And I was just wondering if you had any personal strategies or practices that just really help you on those days where things aren't flowing as easily or alternatively, whether you're just like, well, this is today, like I'm just going to be authentic in this experience or maybe it's a combination of both. I think before I I go to that particular question, I might just discern a little bit more because we've done the experiential, a experiential practice, the difference between that observer state Mm -hmm. and moving and the inhabitant or more the embodied state and moving that becomes at some point more organic, spontaneous and expression of the sort of more subtle energies and the subtle desires and needs. And, you know, that's, that's a practice that we introduce in embodied flow, but that, you know, the capacity to grow deeper and deeper into that inhabitants, as opposed to being an observer of our own life or an observer of our own body. And I, and I don't mean the observer in the sense that um, our capacity to witness. I actually mean sort of a third-person narrative perspective mm-hmm. as opposed to the first-person experience of, of, of a relationship, of our own relationship with ourselves. And it's quite different to, in the practice of a class, to through many different tools to grow more and more deeper into that practice or that being state of inhabitants of our, of ourself. You know, to answer your question, there are lots of stressors and things that might keep us out either in that day or in our life from fully inhabiting our body. You know, there's the term dis, uh, disassociation, which is, is another way of saying moments in which we disembodied from ourselves. And while that's, you know, a coping mechanism or a coping tool for a lot of stressors, it's when we have lost our capacity to come home after those moments our inability to even regulate when we get to choose when to sort of when we need to space out or dissociate and the you know when there's when it's been a hard day or it's been challenging things around us that and and we say how can we drop into our inhabited self our embodied self when there are so many things potentially keeping us away from that. And, you know, it's, it's resilience in the truest term is this expanded capacity to have those elements uh, that are part of life circling around us or in the world or however they are and still be able to sort of swim in the river 
to be in that flow. And in that way, we're really looking at how do we build resilience? And we might go, oh, you know, this, this move that I have to do where I'm moving houses is somehow right now outside of my window of resilience. And how might that, my practice, become about how do I move that into my window of resilience, which will inevitably help me expand that window of resilience, which allows me to swim in the river of flow for longer and longer without sort of being kicked out or bumped out. You bring a lot of improvised movement into your practice. And for some people, I guess that could feel quite awkward. And for others, it's probably more like a, a performance. So I'm sure neither of those states are your goal. So do you have any strategies for helping people sort of settle into an embodied state with the free movement? Well, let's say this, that free movement or organic movement is our innate state of expression. You know, when you have, when you go to give someone a hug, it's not a choreographed hug. It's, it's not the same hug or the same shape precisely every time. And yet it is a way in which the expression of a deep connection or feeling gets emerges. And I think it's helpful to recognize that when, because we do, we bring in what we call movement meditation or free movement into our practice. And the reason for that being is we are trying to get ourselves closer and closer and closer into the expression of our intuition. And when we are locked down with a set container of movements, well, it might offer a way, a familiar way to look inward because we already know what's here. It doesn't necessarily allow us the expanded vocabulary and range and an entry back into the full expression of our intuition, of our needs, of our full expressive capacity. So no, it's not about performance. It's certainly not about making people feel awkward. It's actually a divisive technology to get more into freedom, into our nature, which is unbound and not sort of limited by 26 shapes or 126 shapes, however you want to count all the asana, <laughs> depending on the school. I mean, I've definitely been in yoga sessions with free movement that have felt pretty awkward. And do you think that this comes down to the skill of the facilitator to kind of help you kind of get over that, like, oh, I came here because I thought they were just going to lead me through some movements and now I've got to come up with my own and it's meant to come from not yeah. thinking, but I'm feeling really like, oh, what do I just do next? <laughs> yeah, there, there are lots of strategic ways to titrate the experience so it's not like just throwing people into the deep end. You know, you might start with the same way in, in dance, they teach improvisation. It's like, hey, start with writing your name in this space. Then go back to your asana practice. And, you know, it, it can be building that sort of um, comfort level of, of really giving yourself the permission to have that expressive nature, that expressive capacity. And I, I get it's awkward, but I also think we should reverse the question and say, why is it awkward? Mm -hmm. 
why is expressing our unbounded nature awkward? And that's the bigger question we should be asking because what's happening in our school systems and our, you know, in our cultures that are literally limiting our shape, our expression, our fullest essence. And, you know, free movement is just, again, one tool into recognizing where we have been limited because we are limitless. And I say that not from this sort of philosophical text kind of, I, I understand that, but that is my deepest experience. I think I felt limitless before I could even feel form in my life, you know, which I think for most people is the reverse journey. Mm -hmm. But for me, it took years to feel structure and context in my body. I felt more like I didn't always know as a kid where I ended and where that tree began. And sort of that capacity to feel both that formlessness and form or that philosophy, we might call that Shivan Shakti. It's already demonstrated in the technology or in the philosophy that there is formlessness, there's unbounded freedom. That is our liberation. That is our state of liberation. And so how do we create the conditions and classes and, and workshops and, or in our daily life where that becomes a tool towards that felt sense of liberation? Now, I don't wake up and do a free movement practice every day. I like to go to CrossFit sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but having had the container of experience, excuse me, the container that enabled me to taste what liberation feels like, it's hard not to want more or the continual experience of that. It's like, I mean, the, the very basic example is to put your hand in your pocket for a day and see how that feels to be more limited towards the expression of your body, of your nature. And then take your hand out and see how that feels. And then imagine that we could do that a thousand times beyond that. Or that every moment or so many more moments of your life is that experience. That moment when you take your hand out of the pocket and it's free. And I guess it's that moment where you're like, I didn't even realize I've been living in a pocket my whole life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, and those are the moments even when they, they call awe is that perceptual expansion in which we realize that there was some type of limitation to our expanded free nature. I see that you do a lot of work with people dealing with trauma and you have quite an athletic physical practice. You mentioned CrossFit earlier, but um, some, <laughs> sometimes there's a perception around trauma-informed yoga that it will always be very gentle and almost restorative in nature. Mm -hmm. And is this a point of view that you share or do you think there's scope for a more dynamic approach? Well, I'm going to be a little controversial here and, and say that the popularization of the word trauma is troubling to me. Mm -hmm. And the devise of what they have called trauma-informed yoga is a slippery slope. And 
you know, I say that with the utmost respect of being a teacher and what it is to have someone in the room who's going through deep process. And I, you know, I've been a therapist for 20 years, specializing in trauma. And I think that there's a way in which, now this is not a universal statement, but that sometimes we are tiptoeing around someone's deep experience and calling it trauma and being very cautious and walking on eggshells. And in extreme cases where we're looking at, you know, significant PTSD, there are certainly subtle ways, you know, mindful ways of engagement. And that's not 100% of the time. You know, you might need to give more muscle, more container, more blood flow to someone who's going through a experience or a reconnecting to an experience that had been otherwise unknown or known. And you might also give them more subtle, sensitive or subtle, restful experiences. I can tell you if someone's in deep, acute trauma state, I would never put them in a restful position. You will often enhance their sensitivity to what's going on. Now that's, and I don't want to make a universal statement again, because I don't think that you can ever make a universal statement. But I think this idea that there is one way to work with trauma and it's a trauma sensitive approach that looks like this is actually a disservice to, to it, all of our experiences where we might call it trauma. I, I actually, I know that many of my colleagues in the world of trauma are being more cautious about even using the word trauma. That there is a level of what we might call stress response that is in the normal range. And when we sort of denote it as trauma, we become sort of reactive to our own reaction of what is in the normal or healthy range of response. And so that's why I'm, you know, a little bit hesitant to, to, to say that there is one way to do trauma-informed yoga or trauma-informed anything, you know, trauma-informed CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there are, there are specific tools to addressing what I might say unresolved energy. And I personally like to use more neutral language because trauma has become like, just for a moment, pause and notice your reaction to the word trauma. So you might notice that you were holding your breath a little or your gut got a little tight or whatever your response was. It's important to recognize that the word itself already has a reactive tendency. Mm. And so even labeling something trauma-informed, that reactive tendency is already present in whether you call your classes trauma-informed or something like that. It's just that, you know, in the words of Peter Levine, trauma is, is unique to the individual, not to the event. And the ways in which we address unprocessed energies or unresolved energies is, is relatively unique to the individual. Now, where the skill set comes in is being able to recognize and help the other and their clients or their students recognize 
what sort of pathway they need in order to mobilize or contain or feel safety when some of this unresolved or unmobilized energy starts to emerge. I guess that leads us into the process of somatic stress relief, which I know is something that you practice and that you teach and that you're coming to Australia to teach next year. (laughs) So somatic stress release is sort of part of it. So in Body Flow, we have a whole therapy training program as well. It's called our movement therapy training, which is an integration of osteopathy, somatic psychology, the tantric philosophy, so East-Western psychology, and many other modalities. And one of the sort of, I, and the d- desire to continue to create additional content, I created, well, I got to finish what was once my um, first love, which is the subject of stress. And uh, so I created a modality called somatic stress release to really support and a completion of that biological response towards stimuli, which is called, which is what stress is, and help resolve and mobilize that energy towards completion. So that's, in a sense, it's, it's a three-module program to help people really touch into themselves in a way that they can then identify what needs are towards completion or mobilization of that energy. And when I mean energy, I don't mean something so esoteric. I actually mean literally a stress response is a biological release of energy towards addressing, meeting, engaging with a stressor. And when we don't get to express or mobilize that energy, it stays as stagnant, unresolved energy, dysfunctional energy in our tissues. And it becomes a, can become a quite systemic issue through the, through the whole body or through the whole being. And it, it's similar to, you know, while I might bring in certainly some mindfulness and it brings in a lot of like myofascial release work, it is not limited towards just one particular approach, like just mindfulness. Because as I said before, mindfulness can be quite helpful, but it can also leave us stuck in the awareness without the execution of mobilizing that energy, which is what's needed to complete and restore a biological function. Mm, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Not a big word. <laughs> Essentially, we're just trying to shit. <laughs> you did mention before we started recording that you'll be over in Australia and New Zealand uh, next year. Would you like to talk about that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I'll be in that area of the world starting, well, in December, we have the Embodied Flow 300-hour program. And then I head to Australia and New Zealand to teach the somatic stress release programs and the Embodied Flow Yin training as well. So I'll be in Sydney, Melbourne, Queenstown, Wellington, and Byron Bay, and possibly a few more, but those are what's sort of on the calendar at this moment. Yeah, no, I definitely want to come to your training now. (laughs) Come, we'll hang out. I guess that is a quick question. I'm not a certified embodied flow teacher. Your courses open to everyone or do you kind of need to have done that initial training first? 
No, that's a good question. The like the somatic stress release, the yin, they're all open towards anyone who wants to come. Oh, fantastic. We'll probably see you there. (laughs) (laughs) And the same thing with the advanced training is you don't have to be a, you don't have to have done your 200 hour with embodied flow to, to join us. You've got a list of qualifications as long as my arm. Um, so, so many initials. It's um, it's quite impressive. But do you feel that there's a sort of single thread that runs through all of your work, or would that be impossible to to do? What I feel really grateful about is that they were pieces to a larger puzzle, and that puzzle or you know that larger concept of what it is to be a fully embodied liberated being and all of these are simply the technology towards that experience of living our life in flow or this this experiencing that state of being fully immersed in oneself as self-actualized and fully immersed and in everything that is beyond ourselves with the with the ways and the freedom from the ways in which we have created our own suffering and our own limitations of ourselves, So that unbounded, fully experienced and expressed self. And, you know, it's beautiful language, but it's a very different thing to fully inhabit and experience what that is. And the language could never fully even describe the taste and the flavor of what that freedom and that liberation is. So all of these modalities are simply going, gosh, there should be as many maps as there are people. And how do I really meet each individual or each individual in a classroom setting to devise the map of that moment? So it's a really a co-created process of healing and transformation to maybe extend on that a little bit if there was one lesson that you'd like people to take from your work what what do you think that one core essence would be or have we already asked that (laughs) (laughs) i think the core lesson that i'm really open to to exploring with people is that we have the opportunity to feel what we might call as the opposite of isolation and loneliness and separateness, which begins deeply with ourself and our relations to social, cultural, to spirit, to, to everything that is nature. And to come into that deepest connection is really our truest nature. And that that ebb and flow or that ebbing movement of that connection is what we're talking about when we talk about flow, is is to inhabit, to embody, to be in this deep, epic connection. Beautiful. Yeah. Thanks so much. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say thank you so much for everything that you shared with us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on your podcast. All right. And that was our interview with Dr. Scott 
Lyons. What an interesting guy, and it seems that he was a bit of a child prodigy, right? Fantastic. So for our next episode, we have an interview with Ruth Salter. Ruth is a yoga teacher who now works as a love, sex, and relationships coach. Now, according to a recent Facebook post from her, she loves men with massive, throbbing vocabularies and as longtime listeners will know that's me out straight away I can barely string a sentence together without some serious editing but seriously not everyone who studies yoga teaching ends up doing this full time or forever so it's always interesting to see where this path can take you and how yoga can inform other types of work all right as always our theme song is baby robots by ghost soul and is used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for listening. You'll hear from us again in a fortnight. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>